Welcome back to the Comics Course. This is Miskatonic University's remote education program offered by the Literature Department on the History of Graphical Literature and Society. And we are back to continue talking about the Black Panther. As always, I am your professor, Professor Hamby. And as always, my loyal and snarky and underslept uh, T.A. Rowan is here with us. Say hello, Rowan. Snarky, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you don't know at all. Um, as always, you can get a hold of me on Twitter. That's Rogan Hamby, for those who know the Bird app, R-O-G-A-N-H-A-M-B-Y. I also have an email, but students send me questions and official correspondence at it, and therefore I don't read it. So, Twitter's the best way to get a hold of me. A uh, few updates. Dr. Feckett wanted me to remind people of a couple pieces of business, namely that we are coming up to midterms, and those grades are very important, so you need to study, you need to promote self-well-being, and if you've had a roommate that's gotten eaten by one of the hounds, you are eligible for certain uh, extensions on your exam taking. Also, completely unrelated to that, for a small additional fee in the dorms, there is a surplus of single rooms now available. So, uh, also update on the Miskatonic Manicores, because a lot of people have been curious about our e-gaming division. Apparently, one of the DPS Overwatch players went down to from bronze to something called nickel rank. Um, he did yell, I can't do this anymore, and jumped off the behavioral sciences roof. Fortunately, they keep a wide, uh, very bouncy, soft collection of bushes surrounding the building for exactly this reason. So once they finish picking the greenery out of his hair and ears, um, they are going to release him back into the general population medicated. And he may take over a role in tanking. I'm not sure. Um, I know, that's worse. That may be worse. Also, people have been asking about Thomas. Thomas is doing well. He's not been updating his SoundCloud page. Um, apparently, his voice is not doing well in the cold air. I mentioned when I heard that SoundCloud recording that his voice seemed rough. He has been in correspondence by email, though, and we're going to take up playing chess together. Um, we're playing a particular variant of chess called Equus which involves a few extra pawns, no bishops, and four knights on each side. So I've been asked about putting up a website or something. I, I thought websites were like an old thing, but I'll talk to the Miskatonic University IT department about it and see if I can and post our daily chess matches. Uh, we'll do one turn a day going back and forth. But I'm glad to see Thomas is trying to, you know, keep his acumen. Uh, he did say that he's run out of ways to fry walrus blubber, though, living alone in Antarctica. So, I feel for him. I've been there, man. It's rough. And when you run out of seasoning, it just tastes awful. How long has he been there? It's been, it's been a while. It's been a hot minute. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we're moving on to Panther's Quest. Now, I said last time we were going to talk about the pterodactyls. Uh, I was wrong. I was he thinking, I, I was, I did not lie. I was merely misinformed by my memory, which thought that Panther's Prey came before Panther's Quest. Uh, 
And I said that because I was thinking Panther's Prey focused on his target of what was his quest. And therefore, it's Panther's Quest for Prey, which is his mother. But it's act, the title of this one is Panther's Quest, and Panther's Prey is the story with the pterodactyls. Okay. You followed that, right? Definitely. Oh, good, good, good. I'd hate to be unclear as an educational professional. So. Yeah, professional. We're back to Don McGregor. Don McGregor is writing. It's awesome. Yay. Now, I, I miss Billy Graham's art uh, with Don McGregor's writing, but they brought in Gene Colan for the art here. And Gene Colan's amazing. Unfortunately, he's a talent that has left us. He passed away in, I want to say, 2010 or 2011, somewhere in there. Uh, he largely worked for Marvel. He did do some stuff for other companies. He was a great artist, and I think that he was very evocative. Now, he certainly did work that people know. We talked about Tomb of Dracula during our Halloween episode. He helped co-create Blade and drew some of Tomb of Dracula. And we talked about Blade uh, on that, that course session as well, class session. He helped co-create another African-American character that a lot of people know, Falcon, who uh, for a while in the comics was Captain America and currently will be in the next Captain America Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. So he was no stranger to working on African-American characters, although he himself was Caucasian. And he was a great talent. Now, how this particular run came about, this is not Black Panther. Now, I mentioned Panther's Quest. That's the storyline title. This ran for 25 issues in Marvel Presents, which was a bi-weekly that they kicked off in 1989, I believe. Early part of that year, January or February. And no, no, that, that was when this storyline kicked off. I believe Marvel Premiere actually started the year before, and this didn't start until issue 13 or so. And what happened was the Marvel came to Don McGregor, who had not written in comics for a good long while, and, or, or for Marvel anyway, and said, we want you to come back and do something. Now, Don McGregor had done some other comics and had been working on a, I'm trying to remember if it was a TV or film adaptation. His wife was an actress who actually acted in it. Mm. Uh, I've never seen it myself. And... I don't think he missed working for the corporate entities. And he certainly didn't want to work on Black Panther at the time. He was coming back to do another property he had worked on at Marvel in the 70s called Kill Raven. And he sat down and they started talking and talking and talking. And eventually they talked him into doing Black Panther. Uh, which he, he, he was very hesitant to do at first. Because there was a lot of emotions left over. I mean, he felt like the characters were old friends. And he would go to comic book conventions and sign old issues of Jungle Action. And people would ask him things like, what happened to Taku? What happened to Wakabi? And it, it was painful for him how he left the title. And he didn't want to return initially. But they talked him into it. And it's a good thing they did. Because he ended up doing Panther's Quest. So when he last left in the 70s, and here we are at the end of the 80s. So it's been over a decade since his run of jungle action. And the last time we saw Black Panther was a few years previously. Well, actually close to five years previously, it had been mostly written, but only published about one year previously, was that four-issue miniseries where they used a fictionalized South Africa, a Zania. Now notice, it was clearly South Africa. And they didn't feel comfortable publishing it, even with the fictional name, until 1987 or 88. 
Well, here we are in 1989, and Don McGregor says that if I'm going to write Black Panther, I want to set it in South Africa, not a fictionalized South Africa, not a Zania, but South Africa. And they got, they had no problem with it. So that shows you how much things had changed. In just five years. Right. The world is not a static place, folks. Now, the story is set in June 1986, and... We start off with a quote from Paul Simon's Mother and Child Reunion. Paul Simon is not a super well-known name these days. His name is kind of dropped out of popular music. For those who don't know, well, let me read you the quote from the song first, the lyrics. No, I would not give you false hope on this strange and mournful day, but the mother and child reunion is only emotion away. Now, Paul Simon had been one of a pair called Simon and Garfunkel, who in the 70s, were singer-songwriters who were well-known for their poetic music. I mean, they, they basically wrote powerful poetry and put it to music versus traditional songs. And Paul Simon, as a solo act after they broke up, became well-known for his love and engagement with world music. Now, world music was it's also a term that's kind of faded in recent times, because, frankly, the attitude back in the yesteryears, the pre-internet in a way, was, well, you have music, and music is made by white urban people. By people in America and England, maybe Canada occasionally. Can't totally trust the Canucks. They're kind of high on, you know, good maple syrup. <laughs> but, you know, you have music, and music by definition comes from Western first world countries. And then you have, well, maybe that kind of other stuff. And that's world music. And it's a little niche. You know, you have the Grammys, and 95% of the Grammys are music. And then you kind of have your pity categories for the whole rest of the world. Um, and, and the attitude was, this didn't even include, by the way, you know, contemporary Korean or Japanese or anybody else. It was largely music... That, ha that was felt to have a sort of uh, indigenous connection, you know, a connection to tradition and culture. Although anything that didn't sound like common Western music was assumed to be that. So it, it was all very weird. But Paul Simon, in his way, was trying to get people to listen to music from other parts of the world and recognize the value of other musical traditions, both historical and their modern counterparts and influences. And one of the places he had been to a lot and had worked with a lot were musicians in South Africa, especially black ones who were trying to keep indigenous musical traditions alive and the musical traditions that were quite distinct from the white people that ran South Africa under apartheid. So it's very appropriate to open Panther's Quest with something from Paul Simon here. Now, I do want to point out art here, I, and, and I do want to mention for those who are interested in reading, uh, the Marvel Masterworks, uh, as of now, is up to Volume 3, and ends with this collection from Marvel Comics Presents. After this, I won't be working for Marvel Masterworks anymore, but if you want to read along, Marvel Masterworks Volume 3, the second half of it, after Volume 2, contains all 25 components of Panther's Quest. So, I, I want to ask you, Rowan, as an art person, what do you think of Gene Colan's art here? It's beautiful. And, I love the colors. 
And he did something that Billy Graham also did back in Jungle Action, and that his pages were irregular. Now, he didn't work things like the title into the environment quite the way that Billy Graham did. Billy Graham really had a talent for that, a genius for it. Um, but still, Gene Colan is a cut above what most artists could do, in my mm. opinion. And what and, and he conveys a sense of motion. I like that he mixes up how the panels are and what sizes they are. Right. And that helps convey a sort of emotional sense. When you get these, look at the bottom of this first page. You have these, they're all kind of rectangular, but they're not all quite the same rectangle, not the quite the same size, not quite the same angle. And even though each shot is, of course, static, a panel has to be static, there is a sense of motion, and there's almost a film-like progression because of the irregularity on the page. Mm -hmm. it, it, it draws your eye and makes your perspective kind of shift with it. I think it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Sorry, I have to have a few drinks. Uh, according to my physician, I have typhoid fever. But so long as I have enough whiskey, it's not communicable. Uh, I see. I hit the mic once and it's, and it's the end of the world. He slams whiskey on the table. Not a big deal. Look, last time I was sober and teaching a class, I got reprimanded. I learned my lesson. <laughs> okay. So, th this is great art. Now, the premise of the story is that T'Challa is in South Africa, and he's separated from all the power of the Wakandan government. He doesn't want to start a war with South Africa, but he is a regent. Now, there is a kind of interesting question here that I find interesting. So he's wandering around South Africa illegally. He ha he did not enter legally. He has no visa, nothing like that. And he's dressed as the Black Panther. Yeah, I was about to say, if he doesn't want this to be associated with Wakanda, why is he wearing the Black Panther garbs? Well, there's a back and forth potential question here. Now, keep in mind, this is South Africa under apartheid. Now, in South Africa under apartheid, uh, the, the, the movement of black people was very closely monitored and many places had curfews. So he as a black man would not be able to walk around. <coughs> so having a, a dark garb, a stealth garb at night is undoubtedly very useful. I would separate it from my traditional Wakandan guard so as to not be garb so as to not be recognized so easily though i mean he was a member of the avengers he's probably pretty recognizable yeah and you would think he would have like backup outfits that aren't the black panther suit right exactly stealth outfits but here he is and he's wandering around in it and again for those who maybe confuse things like the movies with the comics we're still at a point where his outfits are just cloth there is no special nanotech or anything built into his Black Panther outfit. And they're not made out of vibranium weave or anything like that. Anyway, we find out he's in South Africa because he is investigating what happened to his mother. Mm. Now, we've never heard his mother mentioned before. We've heard of T'Chaka, his father, a name that followed over into the MCU. But unlike the mother played by Angelica Houston in the movies, she's a non-figure in the comics up until now. Mm -hmm. Although her name is Ramona, which I believe is also what was used for Angelica Houston's uh, mother of T'Challa in the movie. I think so. Yeah. Now, we find out that she is actually of South African origin. Her father 
his father, T'Chaka, married a foreigner and had T'Challa, and then she disappeared again. And people generally seem to believe that she decided to return to South Africa. Now, this gets a little bit into the known entity of Wakanda. What the South Africans, we find out, know of Wakanda is that it's a small nation somewhere around. They don't seem to be able to locate it to fire a missile at it the way Azania was able to. Well, clearly, because it moves. Right. <laughs> and in fact, at one point, one of the government officials of South Africa says, despite modern satellite photography and telemetry, they're able to hide and we don't know how they do that. But they don't seem to have a sense that Wakandan is a culture of advanced technology or anything. Mm -hmm. So they consider it inconsequential, and they don't know what to make of the Black Panther. So they, But they know who he is. So they know of him from the Avengers, but he's not of such a stature that they're very concerned, like they would be with a Thor or Iron Man or somebody. And which I think is pretty much in line with the character in the comics history up until this point. Mm -hmm. That starts changing by the time we get to the Marvel Knights era, but we'll get to that when we get to that. And that's partially because Wakanda is still a tribal culture at this point. Right. That kind of evolves. Now, I want to point out what happens when we get about four or five pages in. And T'Challa meets as he's trying to sneak around this shanty town, this poor area which is filled with black africans and poor white africans and he runs into a dog i mean it's a semi-wild dog mm -hmm. and it comes up to him friendly and he pets it and it kind of starts following him around but t'challa has to go somewhere that's separated with razor wire and neighborhoods you know with black areas and white areas were often separated by razor wire and things like that because they didn't want the races mixing. That was part of apartheid. Separateness. Keeping the races separate, even in where they lived. And T'Challa comes to meet an informant who has information about his mother. Now, I'm not going to go through every little detail, but suffice it to say that one of the major points of conflict that draws this story along through its 25 installments is people have information about what happened to T'Challa's mother, and they keep getting killed and offed. And T'Challa keeps having to trace the information to another source. You know, this person had it, he dies. He goes to that person's wife. You know, he has to go to this army person who might have information about this or that. And all that. Those are the mechanics of the story. At this point, what we see is the dog has found its way around the razor wire. He's talking to the informant. We open up with a quote from 1960 Nobel Peace Prize winner... Albert Luthuliel, this is part two of Panther's Quest, and the quote is, I as a Christian have always felt that there is one thing above all about apartheid or separate development that is unforgivable. It seems utterly indifferent to the suffering of individual persons who lose their land, their homes, their jobs in pursuit of what is surely the most terrible dream in the world. So Don McGregor is putting apartheid directly under the crossfire here. Mm -hmm. which would have been unthinkable five years before at Marvel, but is perfectly acceptable now. And we are right at the cusp of when apartheid actually fell. One of the challenges Don McGregor actually had is that while he was writing this, the passbook system that was being discussed in here about how Africans uh, had to have passbooks to travel from place to places for jobs or school, they, they basically had to carry passports in their own country or they were breaking the law. Oh, wow. I mean... This is how tightly controlled the lives of Africans, of, of black people were. Um, 
was actually in the lead up to the fall of apartheid. Uh, the whole passbook system was basically technically overhauled, really torn apart and mostly discarded. So a Marvel story actually became somewhat outdated while it was being published. <laughs> so, I mean, this was the culture of what was happening at the time. So T'Challa is talking to this informant. The dog is there. And in the course of things that happen, the dog and the informant both end up dead. That's and not cool. The dog is kicked. He is murdered. The guy has a knife put in him. He actually, The guy survives right then. Um, but it, ultimately, the dog and the guy end up dead. T'Challa ends up in a sort of quasi-crucifixial scene stuck in a bale of razor wire bleeding. And he gets into a contest with these white South African thug soldiers. Which, by the way, I, I want to mention that uh, one of these characters, one of the thug soldiers, apparently was given the same name as an actual politician in South Africa. And Don McGregor had to change it because he didn't know it was the name of an actual politician in South Africa. And that was not an intended commentary or, or, or of any kind. Oh. So he had to go in and make sure he changed it. Oops. You know, it's one thing to put something in South Africa and put apartheid in the crosshairs. It's another thing to make an actual living politician a murderous, violent thug. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be too extreme for Marvel. Right. And probably libel and, and legally actionable. Mm -hmm. As the story goes on, we see... Uh, more of these shanty towns. We get new characters introduced, into a man, including a man who works in one of these shanty towns. He has a wife and children. But he's lived his whole life under the thumb of apartheid, under the thumb of a minority white control of his country. Mm -hmm. And he finds T'Challa bleeding and in trouble. And the smart thing would be to ignore it and just move on. But instead, he stops and helps T'Challa. And he becomes a real ally of T'Challa's as the story goes on, and in some ways connects T'Challa to what's happening. Because as we think about it, think about this thematically. So here we have apartheid. Here we have a man who's a miner. He works one of the most dangerous jobs. He works it under the yoke of apartheid. He does the jobs that South African white people won't do. He gets called Kaffir constantly. Kaffir is used liberally throughout here, which... I can't speak for the cultural context, but my understanding is that as a racial epithet, it's right up there with some of the most hostile ones in American culture. Mm -hmm. um, but T'Challa is a prince, an Avenger. He, he isn't even a Falcon. You know, the Falcon grew up a black man in America and became an Avenger. T'Challa is a prince. He may intellectually understand the plight of people who have been put under a sort of colonial yoke, yoke uh, elsewhere. But he doesn't understand it on a personal level. He understands conflict. He understands pain. But he doesn't understand that sort of, I was born as a black man and therefore born inferior in this time and place. He was born a prince. Mm -hmm. So it is a very different thing. And this, this miner becomes his connection to the black people of South Africa. When the story opens, T'Challa calls it a land of beauty and hostility. 
And that is one thing you get from this. You know, when they go to Sun City, when they go to Johannesburg, and they show the beaches. South Africa is a beautiful place. Everything I've ever seen of South Africa supports this. But it is also a land of violence and hostility, especially for the native black tribal people. And in amongst all this, something I do want to point out is I'm going a little roughshod over some of the stories. But one of the things that Don McGregor wanted to do was he didn't want to do a melodrama. He didn't want to do something that was about black and white, good and evil. Black Panther is not going to stop apartheid. And the evil that people do in this are often by people who genuinely don't understand. So we see things like memories from one of these thug soldiers about his own emotions. And he doesn't understand as he has these flashbacks to these beautiful beaches and the time with the woman he loves. I mean, he's a human being. Mm -hmm. These are real human emotions. But these are memories that the black people, including the minor, can't even dream of. But these, this is not an inherently evil man. This is a man who can love, but he's doing evil things, as do others. And when he has his emotions played on him by his superiors later in the story, they bring up his patriotism, his family, his friends. And this is one of the ways, of course, that evil can prosper in social institutions, is that when people begin justifying it in the name of taking care of their loved ones. Well, so what if I have to be evil to other people, so long as it's good for the people of, you know, that I care about? And that creates us versus them. And apartheid supported that. And that's part of Don McGregor's point here. Separateness makes that very possible. Institutions like apartheid do not work in open environments where people end up living together, being together, intermarrying because it's much harder to have an us versus them in that kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. So the story goes on. We get action scenes, of course. We're not going to go too long in a Marvel Black Panther comic without some, you know, ass getting kicked. Uh, The soldier is made into a sort of national hero on the media. We see how T'Challa flew in on his advanced Wakandan little one-man flight ship. And we do get to very briefly uh, hear from Taku, the communications specialist. Taku! Which I I would have liked to have seen Wakabi and Taku and even some of the others from Jungle Action a little more, but, you know, mm-hmm. we have what we have. So we return to the dog who's unfortunately passed away. Mm-hmm. The informant is dead. That, that's how you know they're evil when they hurt a dog. Right. T'Challa goes to track down the wife of the informant. He's in broad daylight wearing the Black Panther outfit still. T'Challa, we need to have a talk about your obsession with wearing the Black Panther outfit. Now, you could make an argument that maybe he's thinking, well, I'm searching for my mother. She was the queen of Wakanda. I have a Wakandan ceremonial duty. But he did this in the South of America, too, in Black Panther versus the Klan. Yeah. You know, Don McGregor likes to keep him in the Black Panther outfit, even when it makes no sense at all. So the story goes on. He negotiates getting it. The story is interrupted by the military coming through and spraying this gas to calm what they see as the militant, uh, uppity African, native African crowd. 
Now, the gas they used for these things is horrible. It burnt, I mean, it was effective at dispersing crowds because it was tear gas. It burned the lungs and throat. Now, I have never been directly exposed to tear gas, but I have read accounts of it. This stuff is nasty and it can kill. It can kill a fully healthy man uh, with enough concentration and not that exceptional. I mean, if you're at ground zero for a big expulsion of it from like a cannon like this, certainly possible. Children, asthmatics, things like that, very easy. They stand no chance. Yeah, this is not a we're concerned about peaceful resolution of this conflict. This is we want to make people suffer and make a lesson out of them kind of thing. And this was, in fact, used by the South African government to peacefully handle crowds of black people. Yeah, you never use tear cast when you're trying to be peaceful. No, no. You're, you're making a point of people. And it's a brutal story. And T'Challa ends up shot. He still stands up and fights back. And a point is made. Including him taking the guy who was the driver of the truck and holding him up to the turret so he can directly smell the tear gas. As the story progresses, T'Challa continues to try to get this information. He wants to find out where is his mother and what happened to her. We see him back in his little fighter plane, well, transport plane. He's listening to the South African broadcast about what he's done, and he falls asleep exhausted, essentially, at the communications terminal. Up to part seven. We're on seven of 25 here. Oh. Yeah, this is a, we got a ways to go here. We get back to the miner. We learn more about his personal life and his children. We have the miner run into T'Challa again, who for once is out of his Black Panther outfit and gets a little bit of help from the miner. The miner at this point kind of becomes his confidant mm -hmm. and his ongoing connection. At the same time, we see the government begin to step up its actions. They want to know what's happening. Now... I'm going to flash back a little bit. There's a detail I skimmed over. Why did the government know to show up to deal with those black people that were gathered outside the informant shop? They did because there was an informant. And the consequence of that is dealt with here in part uh, 14. Sorry, did I say 7 before? Yes. 13. Sorry, my brain is not there. It's okay. Now, they do a practice when they catch the informant called necklacing. Necklacing is brutal. You take an empty tire, you fill up the inside with gasoline, you put it around somebody's neck and set it on fire. What? Yes. The fumes, the melting rubber, it sticks to you. The gasoline fuses into the rubber, it begins melting over you. It is a brutal brutal practice and to say that it leads to a painful death is an understatement that's horrifying and that's the sort of thing that these black communities ended up doing trying to deal with people undermining their own sometimes efforts at freedom just sometimes efforts to live as much away from the gaze of the white government as they could. And let's remember, this was so brutal that 
Nelson Mandela, who was applauded for his fight for freedom for the black South Africans and the South African himself, became the first post-apartheid president, was lauded as a civil rights champion and a progressor of peace, and his wife was also... His wife was a large proponent of this practice and encouraged people to catch what she considered traitors to the black community and do this to them. Uh-oh. This is something that we've tried to erase from history books. But it's out there. It's documented. She said it. And she was unapologetic about it. So let's remember that is how brutal these times were. Mm-hmm. Um. In the course of this, of course, what happens is the tire ends up on T'Challa, and he has to pull it off. Don McGregor really tortures T'Challa in the course of riding him. More, more brutal things happen from T'Challa trying to do the right things for people he directly cares about. More horrible things are done to him than any other character I can think of. Wrapped up in razor wire, burning tires wrapped around him. Um, the things that happened back in jungle action. It's just brutal. This man should have so many forms of PTSD by this point if he wasn't a comic book superhero. Uh, it's not even funny. That's why he always wears a samurial garb, to have like least skin showing as possible. Right. Stuff always happens to him. Right. So eventually he manages to kind of get it put out, but this kid comes in who's trying to get to the water and trying to help T'Challa out. Unfortunately, something goes really bad because the fire travels on top of the water, travels to the child, and the child is burned. And T'Challa is just in grief. He's angry at everything. He takes the child. He runs to his ship. He flies the ship to the nearest hospital, which is a white hospital. Remember, apartheid, separateness. Blacks do not even get care at the same medical facilities as white people. He charges into the hospital, and to their credit, the doctors try to save the child. The doctors have taken a Hippocratic Oath. They don't care about apartheid. Mm -hmm. There's a child dying. They try to save him, Mm -hmm. and they fail. He dies. There's only so much doctors can do. So this young black child died from the same gasoline they were going to use to punish this informant. And there is a message here, of course, about how violence often comes back on the perpetrators. Although you have to understand to the black South Africans, it didn't seem that way. And I don't think Don McGregor was trying to paint this as a black or white issue of that they should simply be peaceful protesters. I think Don McGregor is trying to point out it's complicated and ugly and nasty. Mm-hmm. And it is. Although I don't think he was a proponent of the necklacing practice. I think he was critical of that. As the storyline goes on, uh, T'Challa continues to interact with his informant. He does eventually get the information about where his mother is. I'm going to skip forward some more. You can read the story for yourself. There is a pretty powerful scene as we move on where T'Challa and the miner end up in a conflict with the government and the government just... I mean, they're just sending bullets through the air like they just don't care because they don't. They're trying to take apart a ship. T'Challa intervenes and the miner gets the shit shot out of him. I mean, he gets hit like four times. And his his brain is just 
going crazy. It looks like he's dying. He, he has been wounded very, very badly. And as T'Challa is trying to get the ship up in the air and the military is putting a RPG or bazooka in position to try to shoot the ship down, the miner, despite these gunshot wounds, stands up and kicks over the RPG stand, grabs a gun, butts a guy in the head, and distracts them. T'Challa, meanwhile, gets the ship in the air and grabs the miner. And he's able to help the miner recover and give him some money to help him out. But he's injured, but fortunately not life-threatening. That's amazing with how many bullets right. got put into him. And as he leaves him, T'Challa says, kiss Miriam for me. The miner says, you never met her. That's his wife. And T'Challa says, I regret that. And that's true. T'Challa is forming a bond with these people and understanding these are brothers that he doesn't know, in a sense. And this miner has had a powerful moment here. He's lived his whole life under South African yoke. A, an ongoing theme of his life has been, be humble, be meek, stay under the radar. He's always dreamt of heroes. Well, he's been one now. He stood up. He was a hero. I mean, and it's it's a powerful moment. And in a way, it parallels closely the young boy back in jungle action. Mm -hmm. He's the one that stopped Killmonger, he, this normal person. This ongoing theme in McGregor's work of T'Challa may be the protagonist, but the stories really belong to a lot more people than the superhero prince. Mm -hmm. And this minor story is as important. And I like that. Mm -hmm. So as the story ends up, uh, T'Challa ends up at this wealthy African estate. He encounters this wall with these elaborate spikes. And in some ways, it is a take back to the first issue. Except instead of barbed wire with small tiny barbs, they're now big giant stakes. It is an escalation. It is still apartheid. People are still being kept separate. But instead of poor whites and poor black people being kept separate, it is now a wealthy white estate being separated from the whole world. And T'Challa makes his way inside. He is being shot at by a sniper who's a black man that T'Challa ends up killing. He knocks him off. And the guy grabs T'Challa and T'Challa twists around and the guy is embedded on the spikes. This separateness has literally kill, is killing people. The physical manifestation of separateness is killing people. T'Challa works his way into the estate and encounters an attack dog. This is a flashback thematically to the first dog we met. Now T'Challa is associated with the Black Panther with cat symbols. But he is one with nature, a natural dog, a wild dog, is kind to him, likes him. But here we have the symbol of white South African corruption. A dog, another dog, who's now been trained to be a thing of violence and anger and attacks. And T'Challa has to fight it off. By the end of the story, what we find out is that Ramona is at this place and has been but not of her own free will. She had traveled back to South Africa and not stayed, but been kidnapped. In fact, we find her chained to a canopied bed. Literally, this man had been obsessed with her and kidnapped her to keep her as a mistress. I'm sorry, folks, for that sound. One of the puppies uh, it started weaning and wandering around, and it keeps coming in my office. 
and it's still pretty small, so it can fit through the door easily. It's only about 30, 40 pounds. Um, by the time it gets full size, it won't be able to get through the door anymore, of course. But for now, you know, I try to keep, you know, on good stands with the, the hounds out from the quad. Um, Better than what the fresh ones do. Yeah, well, you know, I'm already an alumni from here. I've been around. I know how this works. We try to warn them. <laughs> right. Never listen. So T'Challa breaks his mother out, deals with the politician, all this, and Ramona returns to Wakanda with him. This is not the first... Uh, uh, by the way, from this point on, T'Challa's family gets complicated. This is the first step of people going, you know what? Let's make this weird. <laughs> um, however, we do not see the Black Musketeers again, thank goodness. <laughs> What was Kirby thinking? Kirby was thinking, I hate my job, I hate my life, and I hate everybody at Marvel, and I hope Stan Lee uh, gets something horrible and itchy and scratchy that he can never cure. <laughs> he was pretty angry about everything towards the end. Fortunately, um, he moved on into a new place in his life that he enjoyed a lot more and was very happy by all accounts. Good. Although never particularly happy at how he felt he was treated uh, by Marvel. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to be fair, I, he wasn't valued the way he should have been and he should have been given residuals he never got. And uh, I, I think he should get more credit than he's gotten on a lot of things. We have Eternals coming up as a movie soon. He deserves the credit on that. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's probably one of the things we'll talk about soon. We'll talk about the Eternals. Uh, and there's a bunch of cinematic properties we should probably at least mention in some passing episode. But anyway, that brings us to the end of Panther's quest. His quest was to find his mother. And along the way, he does not solve apartheid. He doesn't even make anybody's life substantially better. He's not there as a superhero to save people's life. He's trying to find his mother, and that's all. But he does have an impact on the lives along the way. But they have an even bigger impact on him. He just wanted to get his mom and get out. Right. So that's the end of this one. Uh, we'll be back in a few days for another midweek. It is the beginning of uh, Indigenous Americans Month. So we're going to talk Ooh. some about comics by and about uh, Indigenous American characters Ooh. and by Indigenous American creators. Now, there's a lot of works out there that are geared towards a pretty young audience, like, you know, 8 to 14-ish. Uh, and a lot of them I don't find that terribly interesting because I don't teach kids lit because my balls dropped at some point. Um, but, you know, there are some that I think are written for a younger audience, but still have a lot of interest. So we may cover some of those. And we're going to cover some other stuff. Mm -hmm. And because of the nature of such things, uh, we're going to talk about some Native American characters, indigenous American characters that have been done by white people. But I think for representation purposes are important to talk about. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we will do that in a few days. And until then, keep reading comics. Bye. Bye.